Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 19th of January with me, Ian Welsh. I was delighted to talk recently with Renakar Ramachandran, Chief Finance Officer at Sign Derby Plantation, the world's largest producer of certified sustainable palm oil. We talked about some of the challenges around net zero target setting and the importance of transparency on environmental and social impacts. That conversation is coming up a bit later. And we have the first in a series of apparel sector supplier interviews with Innovation Forum's Savannah Razak. She spoke with Salman Azim from Denim Manufacturer Azim and Sons in Bangladesh. That's all to come. First, though, is some sustainable business news. The new net zero report from Carbon and Offsets Consultancy Southpole suggests that we seem to be in a post-greenwashing world. The report draws on insights from 2023 from 1,400 senior global sustainability professionals at large climate-conscious companies about their climate commitments, risks, solutions and progress towards net zero. The report finds that climate action is alive and kicking in the leading businesses, with 83% of those surveyed having set net zero targets and 76% having increased their net zero budgets. In 2022, 67% said that they were on track to meet net zero targets, increasing to 81% in 2023. However, despite this good news, companies are increasingly reluctant to talk about it. As the report states, even the greenest companies are green-hushing and not publicising their achievements. 58% of the companies are decreasing communications on climate issues, with 44% saying that external comms and targets has become more difficult in the past year and 18% not planning to publicise their science-based targets at all. The report argues that climate leaders being unwilling to communicate climate action out of fear of attack gives laggards the cover to carry on stalling and meaningful change. Companies taking genuine action should be confident to communicate success and lessons learned, encouraging others to do the same. The latest Know the Chain benchmarking of labour rights action in the global apparel and footwear sector finds that companies remain largely reactive to human rights violations rather than developing and demonstrating robust embedded human rights and environmental due diligence practices designed to prevent abuse. Moreover, despite such violations being endemic in the sector, companies routinely failed to remedy problems when they occurred. Many companies were scored very poorly in the benchmark. However, there were some glimmers of light. Know the Chain says the top performers demonstrate how strong commitment to stakeholder engagement, human rights and due diligence and provision of remedy when things go wrong is entirely possible with a healthy financial bottom line. The benchmark highlights Lulamon and Puma as posting top scores in human rights performance while reporting strong financial results. Clearly, prioritising worker protections is both possible and profitable. The UK's biggest power station Drax in the English county of Yorkshire has been granted permission to develop carbon capture and storage technology for two of its six generating units. The power station was originally coal-fired, but has converted to run on biomass over the past decade. Controversially, this switch has meant that the power station has been eligible for billions of pounds of subsidy. Some estimates put this at over £780 million a year between 2018 and 2022. Drax says that the carbon capture units will remove 95% of emissions, amounting to some 8 million tonnes of CO2 annually, over a 20-year working lifespan. The UK government's biomass strategy, announced in August 2023, states that subsidy for biomass power stations without carbon capture and storage will end in 2027. 
However, with the technology in place and taking into account fluctuating feed stock prices, some estimates put the total subsidy for the Drax power station at £43 billion should it operate for another two decades or so. The UK government has expressed a hope that with the new technology in place, the power station will be carbon negative over this life cycle. We shall see. A few days ago, I spoke with Ranaka Ramachandran, Chief Finance Officer at Palm Oil Company, Sime Darby Plantation. We're going to talk a bit about net zero planning and the role of the Chief Financial Officer in establishing these sort of targets. We've had a flurry of corporate and national net zero target setting. Do you think that talking about net zero is still the right language to use? And if so, why is that? Net zero has been coined, I believe, for easy understanding, more scientific-based sort of calculations. There's clarity over the setting of targets. In short, I suppose it can synonymously be considered carbon neutral as well. I believe that's the language of today or since COP26. I think it just picked up momentum. And there will always be a change. Well, the one constant in life is change, yeah? It's called net zero today. It may be something else tomorrow. If you ask me, this is the perfect term for today. Given that then, what does Saim Darby Plantation's route to net zero look like? We started working on our net zero targets a few years ago. Well, I would say it gained momentum really after COP26. We've always had our emissions released for scope one and two done way back in 2012. But scope three was a whole new, different playing field. Sometime in 2021, we started efforts to actually re-baselining our targets. So we reset it to 2020, taking into consideration scope three, which involves third parties. Really, it's about your supply chain and not just looking at yourself internally and what you purchase, but your entire supply chain. That was how we started off. I'm happy to say that we have actually been validated and approved as far as our emission targets, both short-term and long-term. And here, I mean short-term, I mean the 2030 target, reduction targets, as well as the 2050 net zero aspiration that we have in place. So it's been now validated by SBTI, the Science Space Initiative Committee, something that we're really, really proud of because we are actually the first oil farm company to actually get validated and approved. This is the start of the journey. I suppose the key to it is we have got targets. And when I say 2030, it doesn't mean everything is backloaded to 2029. So you have targets nicely set for each year what you're meant to achieve each year in terms of carbon reductions. What was your specific role internally in establishing these targets, the, the plan, the net zero strategy? It might seem strange that as CFO, I am kind of like involved quite deeply in this, but really it's where the world is changing. So Ian, you may remember that in COP26, the American accounting fraternity and the rest of the world came together and the international sustainability standards were actually issued last year in 2023. So as a result of it, as a CFO, you know, this is no longer an area that is totally the responsibility of the sustainability division. 
And hence, you know, what better way to get involved in understanding the science behind this, the calculations, the mechanisms. And within Songabi Plantation, I played a role really in terms of, I wouldn't say doing the exact work, but actually I would say validating as well as challenging the assumptions in coming up with the numbers. And I also led the steer call in relation to this. Interim targets, you've mentioned them just now. How are interim targets effectively set? Firstly, you need to step back and look at the big picture. The aspiration is to achieve net zero in 2015. And once the, there is clarity as to the steps that you need to take and how the emissions are going to be reduced, then you just work backwards as to what are the interim targets. Let's to say the interim targets would be the low-hanging fruits. So in terms of Saimdabi plantation, one of our key emissions under scope one and two is really methane capture, which is in all our oil mills. So how do we address that? It is about building biogas plants. It is about addressing the emissions away from the atmosphere. That item by itself takes away a lot of the carbons as far as a land-based company is concerned, huh? some company like us. On top of that, given that we are quite aware as to what we need to address, actually looking at three pillars, the first is really looking at renewables. So that's the low-hanging fruit, the biogas plants, solar capture in our own premises, as well as selling it back to the grid, as well as to look at land use change. And land use change, what I mean here is reforesting, reforesting available land, to replace some of the carbon emissions. In setting these interim targets, do you think that they can get lost in focusing on the long term? And how do you ensure that there is this focus in the short and medium term? Whilst on paper, so I come back to how the emission targets or the baselining was first done, yeah? They are based on assumptions. Some of it may be general in nature. I do admit that it may be general in nature, especially your third-party emissions. It's not really based on actually what company A is emitting. So things may change as they go along. Will they get lost? No, I don't think so because your targets are clear and your pathway to the targets are also clear. clearer. Numbers may change here. The numbers may change if we think land use rights actually emits 40% of our emissions, we may be wrong. It may be 38, it may be 42. So those are adjustments that you take, you do as you go along. I suppose when there is check and balance on a periodic basis, that actually assists in ensuring that we can't see the trees for the woods or the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. A nice pun for our palm oil business as well. What's been most challenging then in this whole process? One of the most challenging things was the baselining because it's about data, data, data. And in spite of the maturity of our company and the data that we do have, there were some areas where assumptions needed to be made. That, I think, was one of the most challenging things. The second thing was when we set targets, there is a little bit of, and these are more the long-term targets, not the short-term targets, there is a little bit of anticipation that technology will continue to improve to be able to address the challenges that we do have right now. For example, technology in relation to peat emissions, how do we address this more effectively? 
it's interesting so much of the ultimate net zero challenge is the sort of technology that doesn't exist yet do you think that may be the final obstacle the technology that gets everyone to the 2050 ambition is it developing the technology to achieve that that's going to be the final obstacle do you think i think it's about the cost for example when you talk about net zero it is about neutralizing carbon emissions so it can be done around various ways. It's a matter of whether you reduce the emissions itself from your own operations or you replace, you do other stuff to reduce emissions. So reforestation is an example of that. It is about cost. Will technology be the barrier? I think it is a challenge, but not necessarily the total barrier. We talk about EV cars, we talk about battery storage, and we still don't know how we're getting rid of the batteries yet. But I do believe when the time comes, the technology will be there because there's a lot of investment that's being put into it. As Chief Financial Officer at Sound Arab Plantation, how do you ensure that environmental impacts are central to financial decision-making in the business? So we do have an investment committee. I actually chair the investment committee where all new investments of a certain spend will need to go through the investment committee. And it's a prerequisite that all new investments have got carbon emission calculations in relation to the product. And if we are talking about a fresh new refinery, it has to be done. And we have one recently, it's being built. It has to be done in such a way that it addresses not just renewables, how you use renewable technology, it has to also address the supply chain, for example, who you buy from, uh, prerequisites over there. Something else I wanted to ask about, the US Borders and Customs subjected your business to a withhold release order recently. Can you tell us a bit about why that was and how you worked to have it lifted? Well, that was indeed a dark day for Sandabi Plantation. I suppose we've always prided ourselves for being ahead as far as sustainability is concerned. And the WRO was placed on us in relation to, largely in relation to forced labor indicators that appeared to purportedly existed in our operations. I would say the organization went through the seven stages of UEFA, couldn't get out of stage one for a long time. But my job was really about leading the team of the entire senior management team at the leadership level, at the most senior level in terms of reviewing our entire Malaysian operations and to ascertain whether it, it was not so much an audit where it existed, but more whether our processes were in place to ensure that this does not bring about an issue. We went through all the indicators and actually got it reviewed by a third party and happy to say it was lifted last year after a very eventful two years. What strikes me is that many businesses in the agricultural sector have now accepted that forced labour is simply going to be a challenge they have to address. It's going to be in the supply chain. It's not a question of saying we have none because that's not realistic. It's a question of where is it? Do you think that's now the case? You Forced labour indicators may exist anywhere. Yeah? It doesn't even have to be plantation because if you look at what the indicators are, it can be you and I may be subject to forced labour indicators. The difference with us is we have the choice to leave our employer if we wish to. I think that the important thing is, is it rampant? It's not about a single failure, 
But if there is a single failure, there must be systems within the organizations that actually lifts that issue and it is addressed quickly. So you need to have the processes and the governance surrounding addressing these issues. Plantations, they open to this particular FLI issues largely because basically they run migrant workers rather than local workers. And hence, you know, there is always the concern that the supply chain will be impacted. Transparency really feels like it's the culture that's developed and businesses like Sam Driver Plantation and others acknowledging, accepting that there are the challenges around social issues, forced labour and others, saying, yes, these are challenges we have and we want to address them. What are the keys to developing that culture of transparency, do you think? The first thing is really twofold. So internally, all companies should have proper grievance processes. So these are then lifted. There should never be a situation where the perpetrator actually is the one investigating the issue. So there, there are sufficient whistleblowing lines and grievance lines that should be introduced to help the internal process. From a transparency angle and stakeholder management, engagement is so important. We do plenty of engagements, whether it's with our investors or even with the NGOs. I think the one other added thing, whether it's environmental SBTI validation in years to come, is maybe third-party audits. I think that is getting a lot more accepted, a lot more necessary whether it's with customers or other parties, on top of making available our own governance processes and reviews public. Particularly around net zero, companies are setting 2050 targets. That's still quite a long way away. A real need to keep up the momentum. How do you keep it going forward? As a company itself, so when we talk about net zero, a lot of the work has been done by key teams whether it's head office or sustainability teams and and things like that. Once we start rolling this out to every single individual in the company, there's full understanding and appreciation of the impact it has not only on us, but on the environment. It will become a culture, Ian. You don't have to think or ask, oh, I'm doing this for net zero. It is something that you would naturally do as part and parcel of your day-to-day life and how you address things. How to keep momentum moving? I believe we should celebrate wins. We should celebrate successes. We should also share failures, but not in a disparaging way, but more in terms of learning from it. In SDP, the difference, I feel, compared to other organizations, and believe me, I've spoken to many people, is the fact that everyone in senior management is almost as well-trained as the sustainability person as far as the key pillars are concerned. We may not be experts, but the understanding is very wide and deep. I think your point around sharing failures is, is so important because everyone can learn from this. There's no doubt that these are areas where companies have accepted that it's a collaborative approach across supply chains with peer companies Discussing when things go wrong and being able to do that is a really exciting change. Interesting to hear from, from the likes of Sam Diary Plantation, you know, talking about these different challenges that you've faced and how you've dealt with them. It's been a fantastic conversation. And thanks very much indeed, Renaka Ramachandran, CFO at Sam Diary Plantation, for taking us through some of the challenges from Net Zero and some of the social issues you've dealt with in the last few years. Thank you. 
now we have the first in a new Factory Voice series from Innovation Forum's Savannah Razak, speaking this time with Salman Azim in Bangladesh. So just to kick things off, can you introduce yourself, outline what Azim and Sons does and your role at the company? My name is Salman Azim. I'm a director at Azim and Son. We are a woven bottoms manufacturer. So we manufacture jeans, twill trousers primarily. Now we've diversified into anything related to denim. So jackets, dresses, skirts, and so forth. This is our 39th year of business. So I'm third generation now. So it's a family business. Next year will be our 40th. So we started with my grandfather and my father. Now it's my father and myself. Then next year, my brother will also join the company. It's a full family affair. In the context of Bangladesh, we're not very big. We are a 16-line operation. And our main export market, I would say, for our products is has been Germany for the last, say, 25 years. But now we're also diversifying markets as well. And to think more about workforce, what has Asim and Sons done in recent years to improve worker conditions and livelihoods? There's a huge number of factories in Bangladesh, and most of the brands that people are aware of source from Bangladesh. As a result, there's always been compliance and guidance bodies that has always overlooked factories and audited them quite frequently in terms of whether they're getting their wages paid on time, whether they're getting the right amount, and so forth, is in short. For us, I mean, I think the biggest change that Azim and Son brought as an organization to the worker is to digitize their payment. I think we were one of the first companies that successfully went into paying them via mobile banking service like Bcash, which we use in the country. And back when we started, I personally don't recall any garments factory that was completely cashless in that front. That now, in hindsight, has helped the worker. But back then when we were implementing, the workers preferred their wages in cash. In the long term, it has benefited them. And Bcash has grown because when we started, they were only a two-year-old company. And now they've been in the field for more than a decade and growing and have done really well. And they've been a very supportive partner, I would say. In terms of innovation from our end, that was an innovation that we brought for the workers. But I think compliance as a whole has dictated as well, like, you know, There are two social compliance bodies that audit us regularly. One is BSCI and the other other is SEDEX. Before, we also had better work as well. So now we have two. To that, we had three. And of course, there's our buyers who also do their own audits to ensure that all the workers' needs are met. But we generally tend to, I don't refer to them as workers. I mean, they they are the heart and soul of the organization. In a previous discussion we've had, you've mentioned the digitization of payment really also touched on some gender issues that are present in Bangladesh. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit? In terms of the workforce, the workforce on the line is primarily industry. I wouldn't say us per se, is primarily women. I think uh, the garments industry is run on the hard work of women. Unlike most economies, I mean, these women tend to be the breadwinners for their family in a majority of cases. There are cases, of course, that the husband and wife both work, but from an Islamic nation, it's fairly rare that women are also contributing equally, I would say. There are a couple of issues, but one primarily instance as to why we wanted to digitize the wage structure is that when I first joined the company, I would notice that during salary days, there would be a line of men outside the factory, and I didn't know who they were. And in the first few months, I never asked who they were. 
just assumed they were a part of the organization or they had come for something completely unrelated. But then later I found out there were husbands of the wives who would work in the factory. They were there because they know they're going to get paid. So they were there to collect the money from their wives. One advantage of actually having digitized payments is that they don't know when you get paid. They get just a mobile phone notification that, yep, your money's gone through. So that keeps the salary hidden from the spouse or partner, or even in some cases, the family, the brother, the dad, in some cases. So it does give them the choice of being a little bit more financially independent. I say choice because, I mean, it's a cultural thing as well. I mean, the women might feel obligated to give their earnings to their husband or their father or their brother. But at least now, only they know when they got paid. They have that option to say, we haven't, the money hasn't come in, or this is how much has come in. They have that option to do what they want. I think on that front, it has provided them with a little bit more independence. Thinking about these initiatives and the digitization of payments that you've mentioned, is this comparable to what your clients and brands are asking from you to do? Or are there any areas in which you think from your clients that could better support you to improve the well-being of workforce? We have one main customer and we have a very strong working relationship with them. And they have supported us in any way they can. But we have an open uh, relationship which uh, I can go and speak to them if I have issues. And they have provided any support if and when I've needed in the past. So I can count on them as a partner, I would say. In terms of this specific issue of worker and wage payments and so forth, they trust us to look after our workers. And of course they should. I mean, we are a small company. We are not divided. The workers have access to upper management. They know who we are. We're not some invisible force. They can come to us if anything is required, if they need anything. If there are any issues that need solving, they have access to myself or my father or anybody in the upper management. So it's not a very closed-off organization. It's quite fairly open. In most cases, nothing is really hidden. I try to make it as transparent as possible. So if they do have problems, if they do have issues, we are there. We try, but I don't know from their perspective what they feel about it. And it seems as though, as you've just described, open communication and feedback mechanisms within your company internally, between upper management and your workforce, and within with yourself and your clients and brands is, is a really key component here. I'd really like to touch on the environmental factors. So with a very rapidly changing climate in Bangladesh, has this impacted or influenced your production processes in any way? It has. You see, climate change is also very unpredictable. You don't know how it will impact the country in a given year. Because I have to say, the last few years, whether it's the temperature or whether it's the level of rainfall or whether it's you know how cold it gets during winter, you can't predict what is happening, you know, what will happen. We are being a small company. There are some preemptive measures we did take. We do denim. So water is one of the key resources that we have tried to actively reduce. We've made a lot of investments in our washing facility to try and reduce our water consumption as much as possible. We have uh, rain harvesting uh, facilities as much as we can. We don't have big space, but enough, however much rain we can harvest, we do that and we use that for our washing process. At the same time, we've just installed a solar plant, basically put panels in every available vicinity where we can. 
to become a bit more green in terms of our energy consumption. And this is going beyond what buyers tell us to do. We are responsible for ourselves. Somebody cannot dictate what should be right for us. So whenever the opportunity does present itself, we will preemptively make the choices to take the more sustainable option, I would say. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing your insights today. It was a really great discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Savannah. Do look out for more Factory Voice interviews with Savannah, which will be published over the next few weeks as part of this year's State of Apparel series to Innovation Forums, two sustainable apparel and textiles conferences in Amsterdam and New York in April and June. That's it for now, though. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.